In this episode, we're going to talk a lot about forgiveness and vulnerability within community. And although we're going to be talking about this in the church, we're also going to talk about how this is one of the keys to success in groups like the Tony Robbins Company and any other business organization out there. Listen, if you want to be an eagle, if you're going to have to fly with people that are like eagles, and we're going to talk about the insecurities that everyone faces trying to get into those types of relationships, the risks you're going to take. And yeah, you might get hurt but it's still worth it. And so this is such a great episode. I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing my friend Kolzik. Hey, this is the Money Hole Podcast. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and comment. Today, I'm here with my friend Kolzik. What's, What's up, man? Up? What's going on, Lambo? Well, I wasn't uh, in Hawaii last week like you, but- I was in Maui. In Maui. With my wife. Yep. Did you guys see uh, Lahaina at all? Uh, we did, actually. They just opened it like two days before okay. we got there. Now, you couldn't, like, you could only drive by on the highway. Of you course. couldn't stop. Um, you know, being from Reading, it probably has even a different feel because we know what that's like mm. a bit. You know, we didn't lose our whole city, but- a portion of it, yeah. you know? So yeah, it was kind of wild. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I have a bunch of friends that live there and the day that it was happening, you know, they sent me some videos and I was just like, oh, it's a brush fire. But when that happened, that was like, yeah, was wow. and it was sad, man, because, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm Hawaiian. I got family from Hawaii. And then I have, you know, ever since I got married, we always went to Lahaina, you know, the uh, Banyan yeah. tree. So we have yeah. so many photos that, that are area. so important to yeah. us. And then a bunch of my friends lost a ton of homes down there. It was yeah, it's wild. Horrible situation, man. But um, it is. They'll recover. Yep. They're they already will. working on doing some crazy stuff down there. Um, yeah. In fact, I had Dan Ferreira on a podcast recently who is talking with Maui about using some of their, um, their building homes off site and shipping them and they're oh, like wow. custom houses so that's amazing they're looking at some really creative that's stuff incredible to try to bounce back so yeah yeah it was a good it was awesome we just kind of relaxed and did a lot of we actually did a lot of driving around the island which did is you? Fun. yeah you guys go up to cool. the up country we did nice went to the up country the down country there's we, no down country. we went around the country <laughs> we went around it <laughs> so cool we uh <clears throat> We first met in Wyoming, I think, right? I think so. Okay. I heard about you because you're very infamous before that trip, but that oh. was when I met you. You heard about me. That made, makes me feel important. No, it wasn't good things. Oh. <laughs> I'm just joking. They were great things. <laughs> I had heard about you too, um, but I didn't actually know much about you. So yeah. when you showed up, um, I just my first experience with you was this super fun, goofy jokester who literally fit right in to this groups of jokesters. And it wasn't until after that, that Jason told me, oh man, he's, he's a amazing preacher. He's a pastor. And, and then I, I kind of had blanks filled in as time went on, but I'm so glad that I got to meet you at Wyoming because that yeah. anchored like who you cool are. Trip. It was so fun. Man. Yeah. It was awesome, man. Yeah. Once I, in a lifetime. I feel that way. Yeah, yeah, it just set up so much momentum for so many things that I see happening with people right now and, yeah, and their cool. marriages. And yeah, so so t we talk a lot about well, really everything here, but I thought it'd be fun to have you on to talk a little bit about uh, the church 
and money. You know, we have a lot of people who aren't necessarily religious that listen to this, but we have tons of Christians and different people. Um, but a lot of the people that have been raised in the church, and I don't know how far back your church life went, you know, you guys identify for sure with this idea that we have these funky belief systems yeah. about what it means to to have money or to try to create mm-hmm. passive income. And, you know, I've, I've met pastors who are like, money's a root of all evil. And, yeah. and then I've met pastors that you know, swear that money's the solution to all problems. So tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah, I was raised in the church, raised in a Christian home. Um, I think for sure grew up more along the money's the root of all evil mm. is how I was raised, yep. which is a little bit ironic because my dad has money. You know, he's built a pretty successful business of his own. You know, he hasn't had a mortgage payment. hasn't, I mean, he owns multiple properties and hasn't had a mortgage payment in probably two decades. If he needs one. Yeah, he let, will not. Yeah, he's not your ideal customer. 8% right now. They're- yeah, he's, uh, you know, so it's 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 kind of funny because it, you know, I grew up in the, the church. I always knew I wanted to be a pastor since I was like four or five years old. Wow. And I don't remember when this came in, but at some point in my childhood, I had adopted this idea that that meant I was going to drive a car that could barely drive, live in a house or an apartment that you could barely live in, and eat ramen noodles and peanut butter and jelly and call it ministry. And that that was holy and it was, you know, valiant and it would be um, honorable. Bumping into other pastors at the thrift store. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know, so when we got, I got married to Caitlin. My wife, who had a completely different, op- you know, completely opposite experience and mindset and belief. And, um, you know, it took me a lot of time to actually shift my belief, my relationship with money, my, the ideas that I had surrounding it. It took a lot of years for that to begin to shift because mm-hmm. I, of the way I had pictured my future. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I think, you know, my relationship with money has been, up and down, I would say the last five to six years has been much better. You yeah. Know, How did it, what made it shift? Probably to be quite honest, you know, we're, my wife and I are pastors at a church now in Reading, as you know, but before that we spent six years in a role at Moral Revolution that's connected to Bethel. Mm-hmm. Um, for those that don't know, it's a, it's a church in Reading where the town that Chris and I live in and probably the time there. You know, getting to see people that were Christians, that were pastors, that weren't poor and broke mm-hmm. and living off of, you know, paycheck to paycheck and yet were holy and humble and generous generous and loved the, you know, it was a totally different, it was a huge paradigm shift for me. Mm-hmm. Big book was Poverty, Riches and Wealth. That's such a good Chris Chris Valadin wrote that it, and that so good, man. reading that book was huge for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's been progressive. It's yep. been being around people that thought different. Yeah, that's probably the number one thing, even yep. above the book, is just being around people that that have a different outlook on money and aren't scared of it, aren't scared of being broke, aren't scared of having wealth ruining them, and who truly love the Lord and yet still, cause that was the thing for me, for those that aren't a Christian, just to give a little context, it was almost as if you were scared of money because you thought it was going to ruin you. Mm-hmm. And if you had it, surely you can't have it and have character and integrity and be a good person and still be humble. Mm-hmm. And so it took being around different people to change that. Yeah. I think, I don't think that's limited to people in the church. I mean, I remember at some point I heard this, I don't even know who said it, but they're like, yeah, you know, it's statistically proven anyone who's made a million dollars, there was, there was a, 
fraud somewhere or it was unethical yeah. and and you know there's so many of these things that are thrown around there and and then no one really teaches this stuff well there, yeah. it runs to extremes so i think it kind of has to be an evolution for all of us yeah we have to individually really kind of look at our life and what we want and look at the lives of others and measure the fruit yep and and you just you sort of kind of create your own ideal you yeah know? and hopefully it's one where I, the last guy I had on here, I mean, this guy is the opposite of someone who's uh, motivated by anything material at all. Mm -hmm. And he started buying rental properties, you know, in his 20s when he was single. And and he did it because he, he he's, uh, he's now creating like feature films and documentaries that are, well, I think his next one will be on Netflix. Yeah. But he knew that he would never be able to get out of the day-to-day -day creating a bunch of goofy commercials for stuff that he wasn't necessarily passionate about unless he created some sort of other vertical of income mm -hmm. so that he could have the freedom to start going after some things and totally. taking taking some risks. Yep. Calculated risks. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's good for him. I'm glad that he did that. Yeah, no, he's, he's incredible. Uh, Tyler Fares. Okay. If you heard of him, but yeah. So, so you, you came to Reading, you, you started being exposed to different ways of thinking and living yep. and, and then how did you end up, you know, at Risen King? Tell us a little bit that, about that story. Yeah. So, you know, we we felt, my wife and I have both felt equally called to ministry. Like my wife preaches and teaches and stuff as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we knew, you know, we were pastoring in a, like a true pastoral context when we were in Sacramento. That's just where we came from. And the role that we had here at first was more itinerant. We were traveling and speaking and, you know, creating online content, things like that. Yeah. But we knew from the beginning, like, Hey, this is a, this is a, probably going to be a short season. We're going to be back into a local church. And so we, you know, after we'd been there for about four or four and a half years, we started to feel this, you know, I, the best way I could say it is it like, we couldn't be satisfied doing what we were doing any longer, mm -hmm. no matter how great it was or how good the moment was or how, <clears throat> well, a new course went or how great a weekend went when we were traveling and speaking, like none of it would satisfy our itch. And all we could think about was being in a, a local church context again. And so long story short, over about a year period, we, you know, started to check out a bunch of different things and different options and different churches and went down different paths and uh, ended up, you know, we love Reading. You know, we fell yeah. in love with Reading after a couple of years and felt like, man, we don't actually, if, if we, if God will let us have anything to do with it, we don't want to leave. Mm -hmm. um, so the store opened at Risen King. It was a church that money has probably, has really been the, uh, the primary narrative for a long time there. They were, you know, the church was in a really rough place, had gotten into an excessive amount of debt. The, the, the attendance had dropped. The debt actually flatlined to increased over years. Mm -hmm. Like it just, they, they couldn't get out from under it. And, uh, we felt pretty called to it. Had it feel like, felt like we had a lot of faith to help solve some of the pretty big problems. And so we've been in it for three months now. Yeah. <clears throat> I was talking with a guy in Colorado who's involved in a bunch of ministries a few years ago. And I was talking about some pastor friends of mine and and he was like, you know, that's really cool that they're bivocational pastors. And at the time I was kind of like, how, how does that work? And, and he was like, think about it, man. He's like, so many pastors are held hostage by the tithe. Mm -hmm. He's like, and if someone as a pastor can create a life where they make money outside of the church, yep. 
um, how much more freedom do they have to truly lead people, even yeah. if it's not what's popular and it's offensive, yeah. which is oftentimes what I need. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't need people to tell me. You what do I'm doing need offended. Right. I love offending you personally. I, it's one you of know, my, it, it's, it's hard to it's, do. It's my love language. It's fun to do. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's my love language. So yeah. one of the things you said, man, I want you to touch on is why was it important for you to get into a community and to a church? Like you, you, you said that was something you guys really felt was important to you. What, what was important about that? I think for Caitlin and I, we, we've gained, you know, we've, our, our lives have been enriched because we've, I mean, we've always been pretty blessed with close friends, mm -hmm. you know, people that. Which is kind of weird when people meet you. They would, it is. You wouldn't think I'd be likable, but after the second or third interaction, I really, <laughs> um, I really break people down, you, you do. know, and yeah. they, they, then they're like, well, I got, I guess I got to put up with this guy and I can't point to why I don't like him. So I guess I you can't. Just, you just don't leave. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I never go away. Uh, you know, but we've been really enriched by r deep relationships mm -hmm. and it's something that for whatever reason, even though we're re relational creatures, people don't do very well and churches in particular don't do it very well. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I've seen a lot of people in churches more hurt by relationship than they have been helped by it. Mm -hmm. And I think for us, we feel very grateful because of the experiences and the relationships we've had, uh, even the churches we've been at, we've been at some phenomenal churches that have done really well in ministry, done really well in relationship, and felt like we were more called to a place that, you know, doesn't isn't necessarily the obvious draw for somebody that is got a strength in ministry, mm -hmm. but to a place that needed fixed and addressed and, and things done, and so. Um, yeah, I think for us, it, the, the big draw was, is relationship for sure. The idea of building a church that's, that's really built on community, not on a stage, not on a stage ministry, not on a conference culture, not on a, you know, none of those things are bad. Like there's churches that that's their calling. We didn't feel called to that. We felt called to coffee and lunch and dinner and, um, small retreats with our church and, being there for somebody when they're going through things mm -hmm. and just the role that we were in before didn't allow for really any of that. Yeah, man. Community is, is such a powerful thing. I, I wonder, you, know, you mentioned all those other, you know, expressions of not even just churches, but movements. And, and I just, I've gone to so many conferences. I've, I've gone to a couple of Christian conferences, but lots of business ones. And I'll tell you like outside of the church world, for people that are trying to excel in business or finance or anything like that, the moment that they surround themselves and do life with people that are going in the direction they want to go is the moment everything changes. Well, and you know, it's funny because we almost are hypocritical in our own, what we say we want. So like in the church world, it's, you only get respect in a sense if you have a huge, massive church, mm. right? Like it's like as, how big- Like as a pastor? Yeah. Okay. Like how big's your church? Oh, that's amazing. And yet, what are the things that you can charge the most for? The smallest contexts. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in the business world, when we were in Hawaii, it just so happened that Tony Robbins had this thing going on at our hotel the week that we were there. And- So you obviously weren't staying at Motel 8. We were not staying at the Motel 8. <laughs> No, we we did not stay that we stayed we stayed at the Grand Wailea. Oh, I love the Grand Wailea. It was Wailea. amazing. It's nice. And 
So, you know, it's so intriguing. You you think of Tony Robbins, you think of stadium. Yeah. Right. Or or walking on hot coals because I've done it. Or walking on hot coals. But what was going on there was this platinum membership where people paid $85,000 a year to get to be in a small circle with Tony Robbins. And so it's this thing inside of us that whether we realize it or not, we may be drawn to something because of the glitz and the glam, but we almost always end up with this desire to get smaller again yeah. because of this hunger and this, this, this desire for connection for this, for eye yeah. contact to be known yeah. that, that you would know what's going on in my life. And that when I see you, you would say, Hey, how's it going at your new church? Mm-hmm. Like that depth of connection. I think every human heart is hungry for. Yeah. And we get lost sometimes in the big when every industry, every business model. It doesn't matter whether it's church, whether it's Tony Robbins, everything ultimately ends up about being small again, because as much as we can get lost in the big, our heart wants that. Yep. Yeah. And you see it everywhere. I mean, you know, there's surveys done uh, that measure people's motivation to be working at certain places. Making money is generally three on the list. Right. The number one thing is that I like the place I work, which usually is around, I like to be around people that I'm working with. We saw that during the pandemic. Like working remotely was really, it caused a lot of problems for people. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many people that are so happy to be back in a work environment. (laughs) Businesses are still trying to recover from. They are, man. But I think we learned something really useful. Like working remotely is a great option for some people in some industries, but a lot of people do better when they're in a tribe. Oh yeah. Group thinking that, you know, being built up and encouraged and challenged. I, I, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how you get better without individual sharpening you sure podcasts and books, but there's nothing that makes you better. Like the person next to you. No, for sure. I, I was, it was funny. You know, I don't go to Bethel. I'm a part of a small church plant. Um, but uh, obviously I, I run with a bunch of different people from all over, but we have our Brave Co group, right? Yeah. A lot of them, the guys that you run with too. And, yep. and uh, someone, I have these people that, you know, go to churches all the time that always tell me like how hard it is to, to find community. And, mm-hmm. and I, and I know there's some truth to that. I do. But I was telling my wife the other night, I was like, man, I think it is, it can be hard, but I also think that sometimes people use that as an excuse. You know, I've been a part of a small church most of my life as a Christian. And uh, one of the benefits and, you know, the disadvantages is that if you show up on a Sunday to a small church, you're not going to be able to hide that you and your wife had a fight on the way there. Totally. And then you realize I don't have to hide that. Yeah. And then you realize it's valuable if they know that. Yeah. And so that a lot of times that's hard to do in these really big settings. And I, I think people just, they, they they realize that the, the risk of being known is, is scary, but man, it's it's transformational. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, we've always been at big churches. This mm-hmm. is the first time, you know, we've we've never been at a church under 4,000. It's a big church. Yeah. I mean, it's growing up, even my childhood. Wow. Like since I was, you know, I was raised in a church of like 6,000 people. That was the rocker. No, was I was raised, I grew up in Michigan. Oh, okay. But like even our sanctuary in Michigan, our sanctuary seated 5,000 people. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, it it was crazy. And that's what you're saying is one of the things that I actually push back on with people because it's easy to blame a big church for not be relation, for not being relational, which I think is an absolute cop out. Yeah, it is. Because 
relational relationship is not built from a stage and a pastor that tells you to build relationship. Relationship is built by me taking a relational risk. Yep. And whether it's a small church or a big church, I'm the ultimate one that decides who I am when I show up. No mm-hmm. one else decides that for me. Yep. You do. De- even though it was a small church, you still have to decide to show up in a vulnerable way yeah. with the people that are in your church. Yep. It's no bigger risk for you than it is no. a person in a large church. No. And so that's one of the things I've always felt not frustrated about that I push push back on people is you don't get to blame your group size for the lack of relational connection because you you take personal responsibility for mm-hmm. your connection. You don't get to blame the group size that you're in. Totally. No, I, I, I can't agree more. And, and again, that's true for every context. Yep. You know, you're sharing this. I'm thinking when I joined the core, which is a coaching group I now coach for, um, and this is true for me. And I just had a guy on the podcast who is a part of our group too. When we show up and we're broke and our businesses are all a mess and our marriages are a mess, we show up at these events and there's 500 people in the room who are multimillionaires wearing suits and everyone looks great. And you show up to these little cocktail tables and you feel so insecure. Hmm. You're just like, I hope someone comes up and talks to me. Now, obviously, you you know, if you have any social skills, you can fight through that and start yeah. some conversations. But, you know, being on this side 12 years into this group and now going to the events and looking for those people, I, I always tell people, you know, when we come to these conferences, the most valuable thing you're going to get here is the people that are a part Absolutely. of the community. Yep. I was like, you're going to hear some great things from the stage. Don't get me wrong. I said, but the things that have changed my life the most are the people in other markets who I found that we had these connection points yep. and these values that were in alignment. And then I found out they're doing these really outside the box things to create wealth that I had no idea could happen. And because we made a connection, they gave up time to jump on a Zoom call with me or let me fly out and stay at their house. And those conversations have changed my life forever. Well, and that's the funny thing is that's what a lot of the people that we would talk to at the pool when you're in Hawaii said. They're like, well, the best part about this isn't any of the messages. It's actually the people that we get to connect with. I met this person three, three events ago and we talk every day now. Yep. Like they're there. We're here for the connection. Yep. The messages are fine. Tony Robbins messages are great. The business ideas, that's awesome too. I pay $85,000 a year to continue to be around people that make me better. Yep. You know, they're, it's a pretty profound reality for these people that are there to get better. And really at the end of the day, they just want exactly what you're saying. We become who we spend our time with, yep. you know? So if you, if you see people who have what you want, whether it's the way they love their wife, they raise their family, they, the connections they have with people, um, and you don't feel like that's your story, then yep. put yourself in a position to be around those people, yeah, exactly even if it's right. scary. Because yep. most of the time, those people, they either have been there themselves or they know people that have. And if they have a heart, which a lot of people do, they're, they're willing to like pull you in. Yeah. And, and I, I see that. And I just think that the fear of leaning into that for people is what keeps them out. It is. I think, yeah, that relational fear of rejection, being Mm -hmm. rejected in the past, getting too personal too quick, sharing things. You know, there's all of those things I think freeze us and honestly rob us. Yeah. They rob us of maybe some of the richest relationships that would be the answer to our most painful areas of life. Totally. I was, uh, I was telling my wife, Fab, you'll dig this too. I was telling my wife, there was a text the other night. Someone was reaching out to us, trying to be a part of the group who's a friend of ours. 
and just really vulnerable about the season he's in. You know who I'm talking about probably too. And and I I saw who was on this text thread and I told my wife, I said, there would have been a season in my life where I would have been so insecure to be on a text thread with all these powerhouses of human beings. I said, but you know what's cool? I said, I know them. Mm -hmm. Like I know they're the the great parts, the dark parts, and they know me. Yeah. And it's like, it's so incredible to have those relationships. It's so worth the risk. Yeah. To go after those relationships. Yeah. It's transformative, man. It changes your life. So churches are a unique organism, right? Because you have people who come from all walks of life uh, are at various stages economically. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And right now we live in a time, I mean, I'm sure there's been, there's definitely been other hard times, but there's so much going on in the world. There's a lot of fear out there. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, one of the things I always tell people when they ask me money problems is I really try to get into like, well, the mindset, you know, because mm-hmm. if you, getting out of debt and making money isn't going to solve the, the root, right? Yeah, absolutely. So like getting really practical here, if someone was, a fr- let's say someone was burned out on church or they had been hurt, they they liked the idea of church, they they believe in God, but they've never, they've never actually put themselves in that position to have that kind of relationship we're talking about. What are some practical steps you would say to that person? Well, I would even add, maybe they have, and they were hurt by those relationships. Yeah. Cause that, that's, that's right. something on there, you know, a, a possibility too. Um, yeah, I would, you know, a couple of things I would encourage people to do. Number one in that setup and that situation is you want to, you want to disassociate people and God. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times we're giving God credit for things people did, yeah, or we give the church, the capital C church, blame for something that an individual that they're probably just as hurt as we were. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that everybody in a pastoral position or in a leadership role in a church has it all together is really a flawed concept. I mean, the last t- the last perfect human went up to heaven 2,023 years ago. So we were guaranteed to have churches led by imperfect people. Now that's not an excuse for pastors to go around hurting people or leaders or, you know, it's not not a license to sin, but it's a license to forgive. Mm -hmm. And I think that when I realize the people that I've been led by are also humans, it actually empowers me a bit to forgive when it hurts, you know? And so I think my first thing to, to, my first, I guess, tip or practical word of advice would be to learn how to practice forgiveness because you look at scripture and for, for those that are Christians, it's one of the things Jesus instructs us to do and actually says that his forgiveness hinges on it. And at this, for this, at the sake of going too vulnerable, I, I, I had a very poor relationship with my dad mm-hmm. coming out of high school and college and it culminated, ah, oh man, I don't, I don't remember the year, but it like it was to the point where I w- had wrote him off and I was n- never mm. planning on talking to him again. I was very, very angry and felt very justified in mm. my anger. And I had this moment one night when I was ranting to my wife about him and I felt, I felt God speak to me. And I felt him say, Cole, righteous men do what's right, not what they have the right to do. Because I felt very justified wow. in why I was holding my unforgiveness. Yeah. And it hit me. I can be right all the way to being miserable for my entire life. Yeah. I can spend the next X number of decades fighting for my right, or 
I can choose to forgive him and move on from this. He still to this day has never apologized for the, the series of events that took place that really brought me to this boiling point. But once I decided to forgive him and let it go, my relationship with him completely changed. Mm-hmm. And now I actually have no problem forgiving people really probably from anything. Like yeah. I can't think of something that would cause me to be, to write somebody off in my life. Yeah. And that moment was probably the most powerful moment I've experienced because it it laid a bedrock for so many other relationships. Yep. And so I think a lot of times we're looking for the person to say sorry. We're looking for the church that, that wronged us to apologize. We're looking for the pastor to list out everything they did wrong and say, you know, and you know what? You're probably 100% right. They probably did all of those things wrong. Yep. And I think we all have a choice of, hey, we can continue to hold on to this list yeah. with our fists closed, yep. or we can choose to be free. It's really it's not going to be both, right? And so for uh, for me, that was that choice of freedom that night. That was the most powerful relational choice I could have made. Yeah. What do they say when you're bitter and you have resentment? It's like you're drinking poison, trying to kill the other person, trying to kill them. Yeah. And it was true, yeah. you know? And so that was a big moment. That was a big number one. The, 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 I'll just give a, a second thing, yeah. you know, yeah. to answer your, your question practically. Practice vulnerability. And so these are two two phrases that we use at our church a lot is practice forgiveness, meaning I don't, I'm not going to make forgiveness an event. I make forgiveness a daily practice of my mm. life. I'm going to forgive as I go. And then I'm going to practice vulnerability. One of the things we do at our church is... after we get done with music and worship, before we get into the message, we actually stop and everybody finds somebody they don't know. And we spend five to seven minutes in a conversation with that one person. And we toss questions up on the, up on the screen. And then we encourage them, exchange numbers, exchange emails, actually go to coffee or lunch with this person in the next seven days. That's incredible. And, and it's a big risk for people. Oh yeah. Yeah. I imagine some people don't show up. They, they hate Sunday. it and they run. Yeah. Right. And we, yeah. it's funny because I've got this guy, his name's Brian. He's been at the church for 15, 20 years. And he's telling me, you know, he, he's telling me this, I don't know, this is maybe a month ago. He got, he comes up to me and he's talking, he goes, Hey, you know, that stupid connection time that you always do on Sundays. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know about it. What, what of it? And he goes, I always try to avoid it. I stay out in the lobby until it's done. And I came back a little bit too early last week and I made eye contact with this young guy, you know, Brian's in his seventies and he goes, I made, I made eye contact with this young guy. And so I started talking with him. I think this guy's in his twenties, young business owner. And he goes, and so then next thing I know we're, we're exchanging numbers and we're going to lunch with each other. And they went to lunch together that week. This has been a month or month and a half mm-hmm. now. They have had, with the couple, you know, the, the young guy's married too. They have had four to five different meals together wow. now since that point. That's so incredible, man. And both couples, when they talk about it, it will get teary-eyed mm. about the value that they're getting from that relationship. That's so beautiful. But you have to practice vulnerability, yeah. right? Like it's yeah. vulnerable to say- yeah. Hey, can I get your number? Let's get together. Like just that's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And then you're, it's almost like you're always having to intentionally make vulnerable risks yep. and there's different levels to it. it. It's vulnerable to ask for a number. It's vulnerable to show up for the coffee time. It, it can be vulnerable to not find a reason to cancel it and come up mm-hmm. with something more important. It's vulnerable to ask for a second meal. 
It's like every step is a new layer of vulnerability. And so, you know, I think if you practice forgiveness and you begin to practice vulnerability, you're going to find that you have richer relationships than a bank account could ever buy. Yep. Yep. I, I agree, man. You know, I'll end with it. Just my, some stories for me on that. When I got sober, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, 20 years ago, drugs and alcohol, I hit rock bottom and I just, I didn't know what to do. So I ended up asking a guy to help me and I ended up going through the 12 steps. Yeah. And you know, the, the fourth and fifth step, it's this moral inventory where you write down, you know, everything, people you lied to, um, places you stole from. I mean, everything you can consciously remember. And there isn't a human being that goes through these steps that doesn't have like three or four things yep. that you'd like to take to the grave. Yeah. Whatever they are. Absolutely. Right. But, but, but so I was in good. this group that was said, yeah, well, those are the things that will put you in your grave early. Yeah, that's good, man. So if you, if you're going to do this, start with those. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I had so much shame around some of this stuff. I was, I thought to myself, I was like, man, like if I tell him these things and he ends up for some reason reacting to it, that's fine. At least I did what I was supposed to do and I'll find someone else to take me the rest of the way. Wow. Of course it was, he laughed and it was, you know, whatever. It's not about what we do. It's about the reasons why behind we do it. Right. Yeah, you can't right. just change your behavior. You got to get to the root of it. Um, but that whole resentment thing, man, for people that are addictive, it's the number one things that makes you drink again or go back to drugs is bitterness. Number one. Yeah. And you Makes know, we have sense. to, we have to get rid of it and forgive at all costs. If you're someone who has a history of addictive behavior, the difference between uh, people that are in the recovery rooms and maybe someone else is, is the sense of desperation and the fear of going back to that old life. Yep. And which ends up being a gift, right? Cause you've got to stay free of bitterness at all costs. It's true. And you know, one of the things they teach you in the steps that is so useful. I've used it with so many of my friends who are not, don't even have a problem with drinking is they teach you is like, if something is 99% someone else's fault, like maybe your dad, for example, yep. you were a child, you did not actually provoke it. Much of the time I had to play, I had a part, but if it's 99% someone else's fault, the solution is trying to find the 1% you can own. Absolutely. And it, it could be as simple as saying, my dad, because I have a similar story, was a spiritually sick man and I want to give him the same grace I would for someone that's in the hospital. Hmm. He did not know yep. how to take care of me. He did not, he, yeah. he was, he was coming from a generation of brokenness. And it's like, once you flip it like that and you start looking at the people around you, it's like, how yep. could I be angry at somebody who did not know any other way? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So that perspective is thing, huge. Man. Yeah. Well, dude, thank you for being here, bro. Yeah, man. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. I love it. And I love you. I love you too.